City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, here we are on City Limits, and it's Kevin Healy. Karina's over there also. So you got to say something this morning, Karina. You can't get away with it because the only other person <laughs> in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, morning. And uh, I won't, we won't talk about uh, football this week, Karina. We'll give you a break. Um, so Thank you. I really yeah. appreciate it this That's time. That's right. Yeah, I didn't think I'd mention that. But it is, our, it is the first Wednesday of the month, obviously, and we've got uh, John McPherson back from his joint up north last month, and he'll be with us in a few moments talking about... Uh, lots of things, but transport he's here for particularly, of course. He comes on every month and talks about transport with city limits. And uh, we'll have John on, and there's plenty happening in that area. Transport, you'll be pleased to know, Karina, as usual. Um, but I thought I'd, I'll get John on in a minute, but a couple of things I just wanted to kick off with. Um, just the, the coverage of the latest lockdown, and the lockdown, I think, um, you know, is is pretty dreadful for all of us. We Fortunately, we can still come into the studio here with a couple of us, but... Uh, and present, but because uh, we've been we've been declared a, an essential service, actually, so it's interesting. So you are an essential service, Karina. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, but the, the the Herald Sun coverage, although it was quite spectacular, um, front page last Friday, all over the front page, um, tacking contact tracing, fury dismay over latest vaccine blame game, etc. Um, 160 days and counting. Melburnians are enduring their 160th day of lockdown. Now, enduring's, you know, a term they throw in as well. We were plunged into it. But 160 days, now that took the last one, but I would have thought last Friday was actually the first day, if I was counting properly, um, of lockdown this time around, rather than the 160th, as they're saying. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, just a typical Herald Sun beat-up. But the other one that was interesting on the same day was the front page of the Financial Review, which, as it published its magazine with its rich list 200 in, and good news for Gina, she's top of the list again this year, and congratulations to her. But the front page headline was Lockdown's One Billion Hit to Business, and it talked about the dreadful attack on business by this lockdown, uh, the health of business obviously is far more important because it didn't once mention the health of actual people who might get the disease if you don't have a lockdown. But uh, there you are. Exactly. All the people who are out of work in Melbourne with no supports right now, or across Victoria, I guess, all the Mm. casual workers who are just casually still having to pay rent and still having to go about their lives... Yep, and well, hopefully, and still going around and wondering how they're going to do it because uh, there's nothing coming in, and those people generally live week to week. Those people. Those people who live on. <laughs> those people who who uh, have sort of casual work in, the, in that generation of work. Um, yeah, they, they, you know, there was actually an article I'm going to raise later, but that most mm. most Victorians are. Uh, you know, are, are in fact struggling to pay a bill. If they get a bill up to a thousand dollars, they're going to be really struggling. So it, it's just a, you know, it's it's outrageous. That's right. It's outrageous that they're not getting some support mm. in the middle of all this. They're giving support to businesses, but I haven't seen any support for workers. I don't, 
I don't even know what to say. It's just it's just the same old merry-go-round every time, isn't it? Isn't it? By the way, we better apologise this morning. We're no pouring of the tea. I've got a glass of water in front of me, and uh, I got the tea out this morning. I actually put some Chinese green tea in today to bring, and... Uh, would you believe I must have left it on the kitchen bench? I got here and it's not here, so there's no tea pouring ceremony today. That's just tragic, for, <laughs> tragic for our listener, tragic. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is um, Matt Canavan, who, as we know, is mad on coal and loves it and all that sort of stuff. But he came out, um, he came out attacking some of the the facts, lockdowns, and the way people are being uh, 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 having he claims their freedoms attacked because of lockdown. And he said, this pandemic has not only removed us of our freedoms, it seems to have robbed us of our humanity toward each other. Now, his humanity towards other people is to hit them with, uh, with emissions from coal. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what humanity he's talking about. Um, just quickly while we're on uh, the, the lockdown talk, um, we've just had a producer come in and say, breaking news-wise, there's six more local cases today bringing this outbreak up to 60 in total. Uh, there was an announcement that this Kappa variant is more infectious, so airborne airborne spread mm. rather than simply just aerosols and droplets. Yeah. Um, so everyone mask up and that lockdown may not end on Thursday midnight. But No, I think it won't. That's I a problem. I wish I hope it did, but I don't think it will. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, we'll... We'll see, but I don't think it will with the numbers floating around and we do have to be very careful because... Uh, and there's a couple now that have come out where they can't work out how they actually got it other than passing other people. So it's becoming more serious and it has to be reined in very quickly or we'll get out of control. So that is While the we don't like it. it, it's going to have to happen, I'm afraid. Yeah, the old mutating virus thing. Yeah, bloody terrible. Look, we might get John on the phone and get him to have a chat with us about a few things as well. Um, so, look, we'll take a break. There's a song. I think the, the current on the Brecky Show this morning, people would have heard the report, or the people who listened to the Brecky Show would have heard the report from Brisbane about the, the people who were up there protesting about the munitions conference and the, the, train, the Merchants of Death conference up there. And they've written a particular song which we can play while we get John on the line. Yep, this is Jangan Buna Kamilagi, which means Stop Killing Us, by Disrupt Land Forces, which is happening up in Mianjin in Brisbane this week. Come on, Bruno, come in, get your arms up. 
Oh, well, good. And um, just, just an aside, John, last time you went on a trip like this or you had a luxury tour on the India-Pacific, you came back and your one complaint was there wasn't a big enough range of malt scotches on the train. Uh, <laughs> how did this one go? You're funny, Kevin. You remember that far more vividly than I, I do. do. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I got, obviously, there was enough scotches for me to... Um, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, OK. No, we didn't of... really get into the malt scotches this time. It wasn't that sort of trip. Oh, uh, well, I'll... <laughs> it was more like, it was more like um, cask-grated, cask poured, poured in corrupts at the end of the day, I'm afraid. To go along with the steam engines and all that sort of thing, yeah. That's right, yeah, um, but that was OK. We did, we yeah. did fine. <laughs> just, I just, I want to go on to a few items, but one I just thought mentioning in passing, it was on the um, Bricky show again this morning, the, there was yeah. another interview there, not only on the on that previous one, the, the munitions conference, but also about the um, the attempts to log in Erinundra, and an article in The Age the other week about uh, the white law tree, which was one of the biggest, well, the biggest tree in the country, and um, it's uh, one of the oldest, largest and oldest trees in Australia, and it's in danger because of this. That's going to the logging would so, go so close to it that it probably would die because of the being opened uh, up to wind, etc. Yeah. But the good news this morning was that at least an injunction's now been put on it by the courts on the on the logging. Um, now that doesn't stop it absolutely, but at least hold puts it at bay for the time being, and hopefully, I can argue that it should be stopped altogether. But what I found interesting in the article because we they keep you keep talking about big forests, and they're sort of seen as mm. the body that's protecting our forests. But in fact, the article in the Age referred to them as the government logging agency, and so their role actually <laughs> is to log. Yeah. And I think that's that's an important difference when we talk about their role because they're often seen as there to protect the forest, but in fact they're there mm-hmm. to encourage logging them, as I see. Yeah, yeah, and um, and um, to keep as keep as little forest as possible to keep a fig leaf over the uh, idea that that we've still got some forest, rather than um, you know, is really a pretense while they're really hard at it stripping out as much as I possibly can. Yeah, yeah. So, talking about trees, mm-hmm. this is um, this is sort of more back on the thing. I was noticing the story in the um, the age yesterday about the northeast link. You know this this incredibly huge scale uh, tunnelled motorway that they want to build in the north northeast suburbs to connect the uh, ring road up. They've, uh, there's been a discovery that. Um, the um, builders of the, well, the builders or the you know the government agency who's putting the whole deal together, has um, uh, uh, over underestimated the amount of trees that are going to be lost in the building of the North East Link by a whopping eighty percent. God, because that. There was there was a lot of talk when even when it was you know at the early stages mm. people were talking about the number of trees that were going to be lost. Mm, so if it's mm. bigger than that, even and then it's quite yeah. uh, it's quite awful. Yeah, right? yeah, and of course the uh, response of the um, the road authorities is a breezy. I oh, will plant lots and lots of trees. Don't you worry about that. But um, you know the pretense is always that a that a that a, a sapling going in today is worth as much as a tree that's fifty years old. You know, which is just complete nonsense as far as everything that trees do for the environment. That's right. Uh, 
And wasn't the tunnelling supposed to preserve trees and that sort of thing anyway? But no, oh, no, of course, yeah. yeah well, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll find out about that too because, of course, the the tunnel is likely to do all sorts of awful things to the water table um, in the ground above it and near it. And so that that can that that'll be another interesting thing to to uh, to find out about in the future because we won't find out about it while it's been built, of course. No, of course, it's a disaster all round, isn't it? Yeah, the scale of it is only only matched or or um, you know exceeded by the wretched uh, orbital rail line they want to build around the city. <laughs> Yes, that's right. We'll get on to transport shortly, John. You're moving away. <laughs> One thing I did want to talk about because I found it really interesting. Yeah. Um, a bloke, a bloke who who um, a bloke called Simon Loudon who was uh, ran uh, ran a place called PepsiCo which sold soft drinks and and, and salty snacks, mm-hmm. but he's seen the light and he's moved over to um, Arnott's. And now he's, but he he talks about making the company sustainable. Well, that's all very good for the environment. But in fact, he's moved on to now selling biscuits and all sorts of snack foods and rubbish anyway. So I don't know if he's doing doing much better for the environment. But uh, <laughs> related to that, um, Nestle, which we always yeah. call Nestles, of course, Nestle, yeah. Yeah. Um, which prides itself on making wonderful, healthy products. Mm-hmm. A survey has shown that uh, more than 60% of its mainstream food and drink products do not meet a recognised definition of health. And some of the categories and products will never be healthy no matter how how much they renovate them or do anything to try to help them. Um, and the, the usual suspects, of course, are the ones that... Um, the ice creams and confectionery, etc., the ones that uh, yeah, don't yeah. meet it. But then, full of salt and full of sugar and full of fat. Yeah, but the one I found really interesting was... Water and dairy products scored better with 82% of waters and 60% of dairy meeting the threshold. Now, uh, which, what, what's the other 80% of water? What's it, I, mean, I would have thought water should be 100%. Well, presumably it's water with added, added goodness, quite unquote. <laughs> well, 80% of it ain't good, apparently. And that, the threshold they're going on is 3.5 on a scale of 5. If you don't get to 3.5, uh-huh. you fail. But, right. Um, right. I, the water that, would that be a me. generous, the sort of generous scale you get it, get get measured on in Australia too, of course. Well, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like our yeah our yeah our, our car emission standards, etc. But, right. um, but the chief petrol, executive petrol standard, Mark, yeah. the chief executive of um, Nestle, Mark Schneider, has acknowledged that consumers want a healthier diet, but rejected claims that processed foods, including those made by Nestle and other multinationals, tend to be unhealthy. <laughs> well, that's very good. That's amazing. Um, but then a um, a woman whose name is ironically Nestle, but she's no relation to them, Marion Nestle. She's a visiting mm. professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. Right. said Nestle and its rivals would struggle to make their portfolios healthy overall. Food companies' job is to generate money for stockholders and to generate it as quickly and as large an amount as possible. They're going to sell products that reach a mass audience and are bought by as many people as possible that uh, that people want to buy, and that's junk food. Nestle is a very smart company, at least from my meetings with people who are in their science departments, but they have a real problem. Scientists have been working for years to try to figure out how to reduce the salt and sugar content without changing the flavour profile, and guess what? It's hard to do. So there you are. There so. you go. Yeah, well, look, you add the three together, sugar, salt and fat, 
and you've really got the three the three main t- tastes you get in um, you know in in convenience food in yeah. junk food. That's right. Funnily yeah. enough, yeah. Nestle came out recently and said that they were going to develop a new line of food, medical food. Uh. <laughs> medical foods are not your usual protein or nutritional bars. They're prescription based drinks and powders that are designed to meet the nutritional needs of patients suffering from certain diseases. So. All across the health market, from creating health issues to, I guess, marketing them. Yeah, well, that'll that'll be another line that they'll try and push that these foods are good for your health in a medical way now, not just, <laughs> not just healthy but medically healthy. But, well, they're being good sorry, for the medical I, I profession because actually customers are not having to go there. Yeah, well, if you can if you can yeah. create the solution to the problem you make, there's lots of money to be made. Hey. That's right. Well, first invent your problem and then invent the solution, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Ah, yes. Yeah, um, and I think it's just interesting that, again, this week there's been more, you don't know any headlines of them, but there's been more gun rampages, as they say, in, in, in the United States, and every time there's a gun rampage every couple of days, they say we must do something about it. But the figures show that in the last year, they've actually sold more guns than ever. And heaps of people who never had a gun before are getting guns, and it's becoming... Yeah, yeah, well, of course, course, you know, it's the Trump effect, both negative, you know, the negative Trump effect, I think. Trump's um, supporters thought that, you know, when Biden became president... Well, sorry, Biden hasn't become president, according to them. I don't know what's happened, but... But they all, of course, had to, had to get more guns because, you know, life life under Biden was going to be impossible. And then, of course, people who support Biden, you know, probably a lot of them get freaked by the um, the state of play in America and get guns to, to defend themselves too. It's just, just madness, you know. Uh, and, and, yeah, it is, absolutely. I mean, that's all we can say about and, it, isn't it? And, you know, we can hardly ever... I mean, you know... We're, they 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 struggle. I mean, this is this is being a bit a bit silly too. But they try to find cases where people with guns have been able to defend themselves against other people who are shooting at them. And you know, it's very 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 seldom that that is actually the case. You know, that people can defend themselves with all these guns. So they they they're just they're just um, making the you know the possibilities of. Um, of um, frightening outbursts, more likely. Yep, and it's uh, it's, it's part of their, unfortunately, part of their culture. And uh, well, you, it you is. hope you keep hoping they do something about it. Yeah, but, uh, I've been. I mean, I've been. You know, there are, there are good American programs say on TV that are quite quite good, but then when you look at the the amount of violence, the amount of guns, the amount of blood, you know, the, the, in these programs. You, you, you know, you get you become astonished. You know, they they feed themselves this this incredible um, narrative all the time. You know that that's what life's like. That, that you know everything is so violent and so, so dangerous. You know. Oh. Yep, and and just before we move on to transport, John, which you'll be so pleased about. Um, this one I find fascinating as well. Now, this is about mainly people in highly paid jobs, but 
um, from the Financial Review, male accounting partners are paid a staggering 60% more on average than women partners, according to Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand's latest member remuneration survey. Wow. And it, it has all sorts of comparisons where um, in similar jobs in all over the place, women are paid much less than men. Nearly 7 in 10 women believe a gender pay gap exists compared to well, 3 in 10 men, the survey found. And... Um, but to address the issue, ANZ developed a program of events and resources to educate members on the gender pay gap and encourage senior leaders to champion an action change. Well, I would have thought the simplest way for a company to action change would be to actually pay women the right amount. <laughs> I, don't, I can't see a problem. I mean, they have to sit down and say, we've got a problem here, when all they've got to do is pay them. Oh, well, you know, it's much easier to dance around the problem with all these all these. You know this fancy, um, fancy stuff, rather than actually get down and actually. <laughs> yeah, host a mindfulness seminar about it or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Get people doing yoga in the workplace. Maybe yeah, that'll yeah, make them yeah, happier workers, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm going to call really... 1972 or 73 in the in the, in the <laughs> Dover or the John Curtin Hotel at that time, celebrating the fact that women had won equal pay at that stage in a court that's case. Right, Zelda Deprano yeah, chaining herself to various places at the time and all that sort of thing, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. something something seems to have uh, got in the way of that legal legal decision. Well, I thought I thought the wage gap disparity on average economy wide was supposed to be about eighteen percent. Yeah, I think it is economy wide. They're talking about these senior positions. I know in those they places, are, but, and I'm finding yeah. that fascinating that the that the gap you know is so high is so there, incredibly massive. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh. All right, look, we'll take a very quick break. Come back, John, and talk to you about some transport issues. Okay, let's do it. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Okay, back on City Limits with John McPherson, our monthly transport guru. Um, and John, one issue we've talked about for a long, long time is the need to get get big trucks off urban roads. And one way of doing that is having an interchange on the, the outskirts of the city where they mm. can transfer across. Now, in the federal budget, surprisingly, I think, uh, a fair bit of money was given to develop and look at a um, an intermodal terminal at either Truganina or Beveridge on the outskirts of Melbourne, which certainly seems to be a, a bit of a breakthrough. Or yeah, does it? Kevin, or is it? It certainly seems to be a bit of a breakthrough. I, <laughs> I think it, it certainly seems to also be part of the inland rail project, you know, the Melbourne-Brisbane um, rail line that is actually under construction. I saw it under construction while I was travelling, so it is, there is actually work going on. It is going on for real. But the, uh, the, the intermodal interchanges are necessary and you need more than one, I would 
suggest you need probably three. Well, you need one down in the southeast, obviously, where yeah, they come yeah. into Melbourne. This That's one's right. going to serve the yeah. northwest, but yeah. yeah, you've got to have them at points where trucks are coming in from mm. various directions. Yeah, That's right. And you've got to also have your um, legislative arrangements organised so that you know the, there is an incentive for the trucks to stop at those interchanges and then to use shuttle shuttle container trains to take their loads to the ports. We're talking, I think we're talking mostly about stuff going to the ports, but we're also talking about, of course, local local deliveries as well. Um, at the moment in Melbourne, you, you know, any street can suddenly have a huge, huge, um, huge truck in it because they're allowed to travel anywhere they like, really, in the city, and that in, seems to include B-doubles. They, they seem to be allowed to go almost anywhere. Um, so um, yeah, unless unless the, the trucks are given incentives or pen, penalties, so that it's it's worth their while to interchange to um, to shuttle trains, say to go to the port, I don't quite see that, it's, that you know much is going to happen. Mm. Uh, it's got to it's got to be a combination of what the big freight forwarders and consolidators want to do what the trucking companies want to do, what the individual truck truck owners want to do and what the the, the port authorities want to do. You know, they've all got to they've all got to collaborate or we just subside into what happens now, which is sort of the the, the sort of um I don't know, the easiest the easiest option that nobody has to think about, which ends up, you know, with trucks everywhere in the city and across every suburb. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the the government argued in the in putting up this proposal that um, mm. it would take 5,500 trucks off the roads every day, but you're right, it does, that we're linking up to the inland rail link, and, um, mm. you know, whereas, in fact, it should be linking up to um, surely other rail lines around Melbourne. Well, it should be linking up to all the, all the main lines coming into Melbourne, yes. Um, and they should finally, finally do something they've been talking about for 15 years, which is to then then run a a um, service of container shuttle trains to to the port port of Melbourne, and those shuttle trains should be able to take the containers right to the dockside where the ships are moored, you know, rather than rather than unloading a, a kilometre away and then having to have another shuttle by another truck to get them to actually to the port and uh, these are all you know the, the details that, that, that need to be got right to make this sort of system work as efficiently as it can oh dear and aren't we all about efficiency in this day and age well, we are but of course also in the federal budget um, almost everything else was for roadworks all over the mm. place um, the only other public transport initiatives I could see were a number of um, Heathmont, Berwick, Ferntree Gully, Frankston, Ringwood uh, st- car p- station car park upgrades, but yeah. that in some ways also is assist cars more than public transport. I you suppose know, it helps in a bit, but it's still really looking to cars yet again. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, uh, my personal view, and I know this is, this is opposed by many people who are strong public transport advocates. My personal view is that in the outer suburbs, at least, we'll have to resign ourselves to offering cars, the commuters' cars, parking at the railway station if we want to get them onto the trains. 
the only way they're going to go to the um, to the to the local station and then catch a train to the city or to 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 some other um, employment hub where they where they work is if they get a, a car park at the at the station near where they live or near near roughly near where they live, uh, and that's just just the way it is because people in those areas do use their card for almost everything. So they, you know, they do expect to be able to get to the train by car. Further in, something we don't do consistently, of course, because we're so bad at buses, is providing decent feeder bus services around the, the suburbs to get people to their local railway station. Because what, I mean, their local railway station is one of the obvious places that, that people need to be able to get a bus to easily from where they live. The other is probably their local shopping centre. Often they're the same place, which makes it easier. But, you know, it's it's very rare in Melbourne to get buses that run at a high enough frequency to make to make these sort of trips, um, you know, bearable by, for ordinary folk who may have the option of a car. Um, you know, it's it's we just don't don't seem to want to provide buses at least at, at a high enough frequency to make them usable by people who 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 aren't you know, totally ch- chained to the public transport system because they can't travel any other way. Mm. I guess also by that same token, John, it's like, well, if there's money in the budget for car parks but not money in the budget for, I don't know, increasing the frequency of trains or the mm-hmm. or the effectiveness of trains, then... It's kind yep. of the same thing. People are uh, not yeah. incentivized to even catch them in the first place because it's like, well, they're coming every half hour, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I totally right, Corinna. Um, the the uh, frequency of our trains outside the peak hours, particularly, is 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 often appalling on what you would say would be a main public transport route, mm. you know, main main railroad route, and nobody seems to have any even. Are even prepared to acknowledge that the frequency needs to be improved. It's um, it's fairly fairly extraordinary that you know that that we're now a city of five million people plus that that you know that public transport is still taken with taken with such a you know a shrug by the government. You know, oh yeah, we'll we'll throw a few billion at this and that and the other, but we don't really care about getting the the system to work together. And indeed, on that point you just made, I mean, Melbourne, Melbourne, they're saying is going to be bigger than Sydney in a you know relative short yeah. time, another decade or so, um, right. and therefore there's going to be more and more need for mobility and transport, and surely public mm. transport has to play a key role as you get bigger and bigger. Well, that, well, that's that would seem to be the the case. Kevin. <laughs> you know, the the bigger the city, the more public, public transport you need because. Um, because the big cities are more congested, and you know, getting around needs to people need to have every option about possible. Ah, oh dear, and you know, as as we've even discovered with the um, virus, the uh, Melbourne apparently is quite an easy city to get around if you've got a car. Um, but I would I would suggest to you that people who use public transport don't see it as quite quite as easy as uh, yeah. e- easy as that. Um, Although a car and plenty of time, I would have thought, because most of the time you're stuck in a traffic jam in a car mm, anyway. So, mm, mm, yeah. Well, of course, that's, and of course that's going to happen more and more too. Once you know, once we get back to full um, full blast after the uh, latest lockdown, yeah, uh, uh, it, it's um, 
To me, it's bewildering that they're not prepared to make the assets that they've already got in public transport work harder. Um, you know, that, that, in, that in itself doesn't, doesn't really cost a lot of money. But then there are a lot of things that a lot of things need to be done to improve those assets. Um, like we still have quite a few of these suburban rail lines at, at their outer ends. They taper off from double track to, to single track for the last few kilometres. And it's been like that for 50 years. And really the people who operationally know how these things run have been saying for 50 years you need to extend the double track to the end of the line to get the most flexibility out of the system and the most capacity. You know that, Kevin, on the good old uphill line. Mm, certainly do, John, certainly do. Yeah, where it goes single track out there. And I was thinking when you said, in fact, some lines after peak, uh, you know, the service yeah. is terrible, I thought, well, at least we're, we're the same at peak and otherwise. So we're, That's we're, right, that's yeah, right. We don't yeah, change. No, well, it, uh, <laughs> and again, it's, it's hard to see that really what happens on the uphill line is anything but, but political, that... that that governments make a decision that the upfield line all votes. They're all lefties out there and all vote left-wing. Therefore, Labor doesn't have to do anything for them and neither does the coalition when it's in power. It's, um, it's, it's ridiculous when you get down to this level and you discover that all these things are actually more political decisions than they are, um, than they are you know, sensible um, operational decisions. Absolutely, because as you say, they're kind of things that, people have known about for years it's mm-hmm. almost everything you've said today is is like yep. well this is common knowledge you know that's right uh, same with the interchange it's like logistically mm-hmm. we know how to get stuff to the ports most yep. efficiently it just doesn't yep. doesn't happen that's right yep uh, just everybody dances around it like like we were saying earlier about um, oh why don't you just you know why doesn't ANZ just decide to pay it Women executives, what they what they worth, but you know it's the same dance in every area. It seems everything's danced around, and huge amounts of money are spent just um, pretending to investigate the problem, and never getting around to solving it. Well, one area that they've talked about for years, we've all known, is really absolutely devoid of you know transport, public transport, and totally reliant on cars. Is that area around? Waverley, the old Waverley footy ground out beyond Monash Uni and mm-hmm. run across there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for years, people have said we have to get some connection between the, the Frank, the Dandenong line, Roval cross to to there, to Monash yep. and, and yep. beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. They're now talking about the latest development is a, um, a, a tram that, uh, that runs without... Um, a trackless tram that runs on rubber tyres. Have you seen that, John? They've, they've, it's I, been I thrown up. Of... It's been thrown up, and in fact, Monash, um, the Monash Chancellor Margaret Gardner supports it. As right. she, um, she says that the place can be the size of a regional city on any given day. The simple, cost-effective transport solution will help streamline the commute for thousands of people each day, etc. But they're talking about now running across from Roval this um, mm-hmm. this tram that runs on on yeah, rubber can... tyres, but uh, it has its own lane, but it's not actually a, a, it's a lot on tracks. Well, I, c- I can attempt to ex- describe it to you. Um, uh, my old mate, um, Professor Peter Newman, uh, who, you know, is a very senior uh, transport acad- academic in Western Australia, yeah. he's become an enthusiast 
for the track, trackless train after after a trip to China, I think. Um, and maybe maybe his colleague at Monash heard the uh, heard the story from from him. But you know the advantages of it are not much more than giving the, giving buses a, a bus line, giving them a, a, a dedicated bus line would, would would achieve most of the advantages of a trackless tram, because uh, a track a trackless tram is basically a bus on its own right away, and probably electric if you you know which would be best, but yeah, and it would have guidance guidance built into the road so it can follow the road and um, I suppose most of the academics would prefer it didn't have driver of course but that's really what you're getting you're getting a bus a quality, high quality bus that runs on electricity that runs in its own lane um, and that's pretty much a trackless tram well, so, apparently the government has done a. There is some feasibility studies being done, so it, it's been taken fairly seriously at this stage. Apparently, well, there has been this thought that they would build a tram from from um, Caulfield out to uh, Monash Uni, uh, but you know, if they, if they're going to start building the orbital rail line, wouldn't you perhaps want to think about all these things in in together in a package to get the maximum value out of it? But we seem to be, as usual, thinking about separate projects. That 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 will, if they if they manage to integrate, it'll be be accidental rather than than, than thought out. You know. Uh, um, yeah, um, I think I think the idea of the, of the tram from Caulfield out to Monash is, I think it's a bit silly, really. I think at the at the moment you can. You know, you can take the the train from from Monash out to Huntingdale, I think. And sh- what and what is wrong? I mean, at the moment there is quite a quite a good shuttle shuttle bus across from from um, Huntingdale to Monash Uni, but um, of course, outside the peak periods, I doubt if it runs frequently enough. It's the usual thing you could you could get most of the benefits by improving what you've got rather than you know introducing another billion dollars worth of new um, new technology yeah and of course the the government's urgency the urgency of government in these matters as you mentioned earlier was summed mm-hmm. up by a state government spokeswoman said the corridor had some of melbourne's most important precincts yeah. that's why we've undertaken extensive planning work for possible <laughs> transport connections now it's been like this for about 50 years yeah, so they've right. suddenly woken up that's right <laughs> Oh dear! Yes, yes, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> well, you know, um, what's his name? The premier, who you know, who presumably will be back on deck fairly soon. Oh, do you mean? Do you mean Dan Andrews? Oh, him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He seems to, he get on your get on your back for a couple of months till they all forget about you. Oh, well, look, look, he's probably been dreaming up great great things for public transport while he's been lying on his back. I don't know, but but it, you know his his latest thought bubble was the orbital rail line. Well, I'm you know highly suspicious of the orbital rail line. Before we fix up all the present rail, you know, radial rail lines we've got at the moment, which you know and there are many of them need need major fixing up and the other day I noticed 
but it's still possible in the core of the network, the core of the rail network, for signalling to fail in the middle of peak hour or, or something fails in the middle of peak hour. Um, you know, those sort of things just shouldn't happen, particularly in the big, busiest part of the network. You know, everything should be maintained to a high enough level where things simply don't fail. Is that something you noticed when you were on a train? Uh, how do you mean? Karina? Something you noticed the other day as in doing some research or? Well, that was reported in the news. It's been, you know, there have been a couple of incidents in the last month where, you know, there's been a failure at Richmond or Caulfield or somewhere like that or, you know, often out on the west, Footscray, and uh, where, where, you know, the, the train service suddenly just has to stop for you know, maybe an hour and pick out. Jeez. And hardly anybody even talks about it anymore because it's sort of the people who are using the train, there aren't very many at the moment. And, and you'd expect if the, if, the, um, if the trains, you know, you'd expect at the moment things where things are being likely used, maybe there'd be even less likelihood of things failing, but they do. And the other day on the tram network, I, again, I thought this was quite amazing. Something went wrong with the overhead wiring of the of the trams at the top of Collins Street and Spring Street up there. I mean, again, it's an incredibly central part of the network that gets you, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of trams a day go through that area, and all of a sudden, oh no, well something happened to the overhead. We'll fix it as quickly as we can. You know, again, that stuff should be checked and patrolled all the time, but apparently it's not. It's just left to the point where it fails before anything's done. I, just just, just weird. <laughs> and I suppose that usual problem of who's responsible, like Great Yarrow Trams would say probably the state's responsible, and who is responsible for maintaining those things? Well, Yarrow Trams, but, you know, they'll probably say, oh, no, that's not something, that's not in our normal remit. That would be something that... Um, we need extra money before we'll fix that up. But, you know, that, of course, is just nonsense. Kind of reminds me a little bit of public housing, actually, as the standard kind of, <clears throat> excuse yep. me, as the standard kind of lowers and lowers. Um, mm. Only people who have no other option are kind of the ones that are pushed yeah. to use this, this substandard transportation. Um, yep. Similar with public housing, you know, back in the day um, when there was a lot more available... A lot of older people could choose mm-hmm. to do it. You know, it should be for mm. everyone. Public housing mm. and, and mm. public transport should be for everyone. But mm. now it's it's kind of generally accepted that it's yep. uh, marginalised and poor people's yep. things. Yep. Uh, and it's it's like the government's running an experiment just to see how low they can go. You know, how bad you can know. we get it? Yeah. How bad can we? How bad bad can we get away with? The limbo government. That's right. Um, that's right. And, and how I don't low think, can you go? I, half the time, I don't think the ministers even realise that's what's going on. But that's what is going on. Well, another interesting thing happening is that there's a there's a fairly strong community objection out at um, in the eastern suburbs to mm-hmm. the consultation process over level crossing removals at. Um, Surrey Hills and Mont Mont Albert Union Road and Mont Albert Road but it's to do with and it's around Surrey Hills and Mont Albert's railway stations but I notice this is the interesting part that both stations are going to be closed down and a new station between them is going to be built so we're losing two stations and replacing them with one 
are very close together. Is that a, do you reckon it's reasonable? Well, that, that is the argument they'll run. And, of course, getting rid of one station will speed up the trains by a couple of minutes on the route. <laughs> and why should, why should all those nice, nice middle-class people out there you know, have two stations when most other parts of Melbourne are lucky to get one? <laughs> right. Do you like that? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Run with that. But I just find it fascinating. You've got, it you've got a, railway stations and you decide to close them. You, it, is a bit, it, it is a bit really nimbyism in a way, you know. We don't want anything to change in our backyard. Thank you very much, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's, at the moment there's still level crossings and there have been, you know, awful incidents on those level crossings, one of them fairly recently. Um, and, uh, but, of course, um, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, um, it's usual in the, in the nicer suburbs for these sort of things to be resisted, I would, I would say, more. You know, more vigorously than... Camberwell Station was a classic example, wasn't it? Well, wasn't it? Yeah. And that that's right. That that even had Geoffrey... Geoffrey... Um, oh, Rush. You know? Geoffrey Rush. Rush, thank you. Yeah. Geoffrey Rush involved in that, yes, because he has or had a nice, a nice house not far from the station. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think they just... I think that the Camberwell's just been put on the too hard basket, but I think the idea was they wanted to build shops over the st- over the top of the station. Um, whether that was really a good idea or not, I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. the The other thing the government's done in the past couple of weeks is pass the legislation that puts imposes a charge on electric cars, a mileage charge on electric mm. cars, and it's it's got. I think justifiably got the environment movement screaming and yelling, saying we should be encouraging mm. electric cars and not putting mm. imposts on them. Um, it does seem to be, uh, it does seem to run against what we should be doing, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think they're looking at electric cars as being something for the elite. You know, this is the, well, the way the government's looking at it. And, and these these rich people who are buying electric cars, and granted, most electric cars at the moment. Cost north of sixty or seventy thousand mm. dollars, um, but there are now some reasonable cars coming in from China, which are much cheaper than electric as well. Uh, I think that's the way they're looking at it. It's not, you know, being a Labor government, they're thinking, oh well, we can put this charge on, and um, these people are rich enough to afford it. But you would think that you might announce that you're going to put a charge on in, say, a few years because you want to encourage electric cars at the moment and that you'll bring the charge in over time and raise it, you know, over time, maybe. You know, do something. Well, ironically, they've simultaneously given some sort of allowance to try and encourage people to get electric cars. but they that's right. On one hand, and they're doing it the other, they're taking money off them. I know. A two and a half cent per per kilometre of charge... For running an electric car, on the other hand, they'll pay three thousand dollars to off the price of the electric car. Mm. Yeah, all all a bit, all a bit weird. I mean, let's face it though: an electric car is still a car. It still takes up space on the road. It still causes um, congestion. Uh, it mightn't have fumes coming out the tailpipe, but things like the 
the brakes, if they're, if they're using mechanical brakes, still put, um, you know, little little bits into the air, um, as do the tyres. Apparently tyres, um, of course, shed rubber all the time. And that's and that's that's surprisingly large proportion of the um, of the um, rubber that's in the air air and roads is coming off the tyre and gets washed into waterways as well, of course, off the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the so the electric car has its advantages. It doesn't doesn't spew fumes out the tailpipe. It doesn't make a lot of noise, although it still makes some. Uh, so it's not it's not it's not perfect. Uh, you know, and, but they, and there probably should be a way. I think that it, that it does pay for its, um, you know, using the road and you know the, the charges on cash. A lot of it should be a congestion charge in the city. You know, uh, and that that would be far more than two and a half cents a, a, a kilometre. Yeah, so, um, but you're out of time. Oh dear, we've hardly got started. That last one is a very... Well, you missed a month. We'll catch up next month again. Okay. Well, that, well, the whole thing about electric cars and you know what they should be charged, and I think they should be charged something, is is interesting. But it, but yeah. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it argued properly. You know, not just the government putting their finger up in the air and coming up with a figure. You know. Which you know probably happened in the minister's office with with his advisers. It didn't happen anywhere with any um, you know so-called expertise like Vic Rhodes. No. <laughs> that's not a, that's not an expertise I'd particularly trust anyway. No, but uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John. Look, thanks for that, and we'll talk to you okay. again next month. Okay, thank you okay. both. Radio. See you, John. Bye now. John McPherson there, who's our monthly expert on transport issues, and we'll talk to him again on the first Wednesday next month. Next week we've got. I originally thought it was Radiothon, but the Radiothon, Radiothon's the week after that, I think. It's the, 16th Yeah, the of 16th. June. So next week we'll have our energy day and we'll be talking about, I've got no idea, we'll be talking about energy next week. <laughs> Thanks, Karina, by the way, and doing a wonderful job keeping us on here. Thanks, Kevin. And we'll be here next week, rain, hail, shine, or extended lockdown. Uh, you've been listening to City Limits on 3CR. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.